we really don't have rules. We have standards that you need to live up to. You know, the standards, they're not many, but we enforce them. And, you know, be on time. If you're not on time, that's, that's a major problem. Behave like a gentleman. Play against the game. Show the other team respect. Don't talk to the other team. Just play the game. You're out there by yourself. That other squad's just, they're giving you somebody to practice against. Hey, and welcome to Ahead of the Curve, your source for the most up-to-date coaching strategies for player and coaching development. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner. We have an incredible guest today and head coach Butch Chaffin from Cookville, Tennessee. Coach Chaffin and I discuss phrases that win, what being a Cookville Cavalier means and the standards they set, and how he has taken an approach of do simple better. I may even get him to tell us a David Price story. I had a ton of fun with this episode with Coach Butch Chaffin. Coach Chaffin, thanks for being on Ahead of the Curve. Hey, it's my pleasure. Well, I'm honored to have you on. And so for our guests, can you tell us a little bit about your story and why did you get into coaching? Well, actually, uh, I was a pretty good student in high school. And my mom and dad, you know, I have two older sisters. I'm like the only boy in our entire family. and. Uh, you know, play ball in high school and was one of those guys that was just very average. I got cut my first year and found a camp in Florida that, uh, before camps were cool and went down there and they fixed me, believe it or not, they made a couple adjustments in about 20 minutes and it really turned me around as a player. Uh, I had, ne- I, you know, you don't see yourself and there wasn't a lot of film back there where you film yourself and there were no showcases and uh, your coach was usually an assistant football coach who just took time and liked being around uh, the game. So I kind of tweaked my game and played in high school and was making good grades and my ability and my grades didn't line up. So, you know, I was kind of near the top of my class and uh, I got a couple junior college offers and I was going to go, uh, I was going to junior college and my dad, he wasn't very happy about it, but he knew I wanted to play. So uh, went to junior college. My dad, uh, he was on the beach at Normandy, oh, you know, wow. setting charge. Yeah. Setting charges actually the night before there were 83 guys in his unit and 80 of them got killed. And, uh, so you can see he, uh, you know, fought in Korea, did a couple tours in Vietnam. My mother was a nurse for 40 years. So you can kind of see the structured environment I grew up in. He gets out of, uh, the Navy and kind of becomes a petroleum engineer and he thought I was going to be an engineer and I thought I was going to be an engineer and I went to school and was going to play ball and I took some pre-engineering classes and I kind of looked around the room and went, ah, I can't relate to any of these people, nothing against engineers, but, uh, you know, I I kept thinking, what am I going to do? And uh, I was actually walking across the campus and there was a line coming out of the building and the line was all just really attractive female and I gravitated toward that line and it was the education building and kind of went in and listened to what it was about and thought I can do this and uh, combine uh, that with my love for the game and my knowledge is you know that I gained in junior college just decided to go into coaching and it's been a blessing ever since and so where do you coach at currently I am at Cookville High School in Cookville, Tennessee. 
It is halfway between Nashville and Knoxville. We're the fourth largest school in Tennessee, but it's kind of bizarre. We're kind of out in the middle of no place on Interstate 40. Like I said, we have about 2,200 kids, and they're just good kids. We have all kinds of academic kids and uh, uh, send kids to Yale and Harvard. Uh, But at the same time, we have a lot of country kids that, you know, uh, they're just going to graduate from high school and get a job and work hard for 40, 50 years and raise a family. And uh, so we got all kinds here. And so can you tell us, what does it mean to be a Cookville Cavalier? So what do you stress to your players? And, and I'm curious, because you use this hashtag all the time on Twitter, what does hashtag credo mean? All right. Uh, to be a Cookville Cavalier, uh, we have a sign in my locker room, and uh, I said this a long time ago, and uh, It was one of those things where you say it and you don't realize anybody's paying attention. And uh, we were in the weight room, and I was trying to motivate my guys. And, uh, you know, I started naming a few schools in the area. And, uh, yeah, I said, you know, you could have been born a warrior or you could have been born a patriot uh, or, you you know, you could have been born a jet or a panther. But I thank God every day that I was born a cavalier. And it kind of – took off and they, you know, that first group, they, uh, they wanted to make fun of it. And I tried to show them every day. This is what it looks like. This, you know, we work hard and we pay attention to the little things and, uh, the small details and, you know, our culture and everybody, you know, that's the hot new thing. It seems like, uh, every few years there's a hot new thing. It's the mental game, it's culture, it's ethics, whatever. Our culture, it's about communication, it's about hard work, and it's about no drama. We just want to play ball. We don't want uh, anything getting in our way. And uh, the credo hashtag, uh, honestly, I, I think I stole that several years ago from someplace. I can't remember. And I looked it up, and uh, I was like, hey, I like that. You know, And a lot of people are like, what's your credo? Uh, our credo is our credo. And if you look it up, it's going to talk about a system of belief. And, you know, I, I'm stressing all the time, hey, you got to believe in each other. You got to believe in uh, your coaches. You got to believe in the system and what we're trying to teach you. And the sooner you learn that, you know, the, the more of an impact you'll be able to have. No, I love that. So uh, talk to us about your practices a little bit. So let's start in the fall. And what does a typical week look like for you guys in the fall? Well, we, uh, we traditionally will start school. Uh, the first week of August, they're still winding down summer ball, and uh, I, it's a good time to really, you know, get all your paperwork in order and let them kind of acclimate to high school, the young kids, and settle in. Then we will start in September after Labor Day, or well, usually about the week before Labor Day, and then we'll go about four days per week. Uh, our rules say we can lift weights, we can condition, we can throw. We let older guys, you know, do some stuff and lead some stuff. But I really believe in the fall that uh, we want to make kids stronger. You know, we want to build arm strength. Me personally, I think the most difficult thing to do is build arm strength, and it takes the longest. And we want to make sure that uh, the throwing's safe. Uh, we want to teach them how to throw correctly so they don't hurt themselves, so they can get stronger. And we combine that with uh, we're uh, really lucky. Um, a lot of places, uh, you know, coaches may not get along. We have a great football coach who's not threatened by what we're doing, and he allows us in uh, the big weight room. We have a giant weight room, and we get a lot of work done in that weight room. 
And I used to be that guy, hey, who was scared of the weights. Hey, let's not let's not hurt ourselves. And I kind I've kind of come 180 on that. Uh, I like big and strong because big and strong means they're confident. It means they don't break down as often. We we've been really lucky. We haven't had uh, major injuries over the last several years. So in the fall, we're trying to mentally challenge them. We're trying to physically challenge them. It'll conclude with the thing we call the anvil, which is just almost cruel what we do. It's a system of exercise and events that you go one, you know, one to the other, tire flipping, weight lifting, sprinting, mileage, just anything you can think of. And it's become a thing now to where my assistant coaches just try to invent things to see if they can do it. Tell us a little bit about the Anvil Challenge. Well, like I said, it's uh, it's just a bunch of, uh, it's a competition. Everybody in the team uh, participates. Uh, the first 10 guys get T-shirts. The last couple of years, we kind of changed it up. We divide them into four teams. You know, the winning team will get the uh, T-shirt, and the overall winner gets his name uh, on an Anvil that we actually have. And uh, it's become a big deal. By putting them on teams, there's a point system that you can get by where you finish. You know, you want the lowest score. So that last guy who's really busting it, but he may not, he may not be a miler. Uh, you know, he's got to pick it up a step, or he's got to make it up by flipping the tire of the 20 yards, or, uh, you know, the farmer carry. He's got to really pick it up there. So, you know, it's just a thing. This past season it was perfect because uh, – we had had really nice weather, and we do it right before Christmas break. And there's a big build up to it, and kind of a draft for the players. And we were really lucky because it was about 26 degrees, and it was freezing cold, and it had rained, and the ground was frozen. And we do it on the track, and you go from the track to the weight room to the practice football field to the track to the practice football field back to the weight room. So they're constantly moving, and you know, the look on their faces when they have that sense of accomplishment that, yeah, uh, you know, I just finished the anvil. And, you know, our school knows about it, and people show up and watch it, and you wear an anvil shirt around our school, I think you get a little bit more respect. Yeah, it sounds like it. So do you guys just take about a week to do this, or is this just a one-day thing? This is a one-day, and it takes about an hour and a half, and we coach them up. They're drinking water by the gallon leading up to this. So, uh, you know, they won't cramp up or fall out or anything like that. You start it with a mile run, and then you go to a farmer carry. And then you have to do, it's called a six across. It's like you sprint 30 yards, you sprint back, you sprint. It's like a hockey drill, but we do it on the track. And then you have to run another mile. Gosh, you get 45 minutes into this thing, and guys are puking all over the place puking on uh, themselves, but they won't stop. We've never had a kid stop. And so what's your reasoning behind why you guys are doing this? We just want, we just want to mentally challenge them because we get a lot of kids, which, uh, you know, I'm not bashing anybody or, you know, today's generation or anything like that, but we get a lot of kids that, um, you know, their parents have carried their bags to their summer league games in middle school and they're Gatorade toters where they'll sneak and hand it over the fence. And uh, we just want them. They got to do this on their own. Nobody's there to save them. The cavalry's not coming. And the sense of accomplishment. This past year, I had a freshman tell me, 
that's the hardest thing I've ever done, and that's the most satisfied I've ever been. So, you know, I thought that was really neat that, uh, wow, this is hard. It's difficult. I've always been allowed to stop. Uh, if I squirt a tear or double up like I'm cramping, you know, it's okay if I stop. And here, uh, you squirt a tear, cramp or puke, and it's just, a coach is going to be in your grill and talking about how you're letting other guys down and you've got to finish. And amazing enough, they always finish it. So really, it's about just testing their limits just to really even see what they are. Yeah, push me on. Obviously, that's a competitive aspect. Do you guys do anything else to just involve uh, competition into practices? You know, we're like a lot of other people. We're going to compete in the weight room. Uh, like I said, we try to lift heavy. And by the end of fall in the winter, we got guys throwing up serious weight, proving a lot to themselves. And if a guy... If a guy calls that he wants to go for a max and he wants a new, he wants a new load, uh, on a squat rack or something like that, the whole weight room stops. We gather around. He knocks it out and we have a junior little pep rally on the spot and we go back to what we're doing. And 20 minutes later, another guy will go, Hey, I want to do it. And he'll get under it and he'll squat it. Uh, we have another little junior pep rally and, uh, you know, the look on their faces, uh, after something like that. You know, there's so much in the tank that people and players don't realize. One of my big jobs as a coach is to show you you can't empty that tank, that you can push uh, push beyond what you think uh, you can do, and you can go a little bit further. Because come springtime, that's what's going to have to happen. You might roll an ankle, we'll have to throw some tape on it, and you got to go. You know, the, I think we learn a lot of that in the fall and the wintertime. Definitely, and you at least find out who's going to be there in the seventh inning whenever you have the game on the line. Absolutely, and, uh, you know, I love all my guys, just like every coach. They love their guys, but they have guys on their team that they know they're going to step out in front of that train, uh, that they're going to take a bullet for the team if they have to. And then you have other guys that, uh, you know, maybe not so much. And I think uh, in a weight room, on a track, on a practice field, uh, in the cage, there are all kinds of environments every day where you can create situations to where you can learn about your guys. And if you're a coach and you're not learning about your guys every day, uh, you're not coaching. So that kind of segues into my next quest question, and it's a little bit of a mix of both. So the Anvil Challenge is, also, is a competition, but it's also what I would consider a, a team and leadership building uh, session. So are, are there some other team or leadership building stuff that you guys do? You know, uh, and again, I'm not going to knock anybody. You know, a lot of guys will take retreats or take their guys camping or build some s'mores or something like that around a campfire. Uh, my guys hang out with each other all the time. You see one of my guys, you see 10 of them. Their bond is tight, and we help with that bond, and we help build that bond, but those guys are doing it on their own because they know we're going to be with each other every day, every school day, weekends, hotels, buses, dugout, uh, weight room. They're going to be with each other a lot. So you know, as far as team building stuff, you know, it's just plain old sweat equity. Uh, I want that guy that sweats with me, you know, in the weight room. I want that guy that sweats with me in the cage in the summertime uh, when it's 95 degrees and, you know, it, we're just getting after it. We can barely hold the bat because it's so slick because we're just, we're drenched. And 
so we do a lot of uh, I call it sweat equity stuff. We you know we're just gonna we're gonna build this thing together. As far as leadership building, uh, I'm constantly amazed. Um, Rich Froning, who's the CrossFit fittest man on the planet, four time fittest man on the planet. 10, 12 years ago, he was my second baseman. He was just a mentally tough kid. We used to, we used to elect captains at the beginning of the year. And, man, he, he was physically strong. He was mentally strong. He was emotionally strong human being. He was just different. And he came to me about 10 games into the season. He said, Coach, can I talk to you? He shut the door to the office. And I said, what's up, Rich? And he goes, this is hard. I said, what are you talking about? He said, being captain's hard. He said, I'm putting out fires here and there. And I was like, it hit me. You know, as a young, younger coach, I was like, oh, my gosh. Here's one of my best players, and I'm breaking him down just because I hung a C on him. So now what we do is we have a little ceremony, and everybody's sworn in as the captain at the beginning of the year. And at the end of the year, when we're voting on all our awards at the banquet, we vote for the two permanent captains who get their name on the plaque, the guys that show the best leadership, who did the best job of keeping uh, all our standards enforced and took charge of the locker room and made sure that uh, it was a drama, drama-free environment. So, you know, we don't, we don't coach up leaders. We kind of let it naturally evolve, which kind of goes against, I guess, what everybody else does, but it seems to work for us. Oh, and, and during this stuff, I think that you find out that your leaders emerge whenever uh, whenever you guys do this sweat equity stuff. No doubt. I don't think you can force leadership. If, and, you know, if a kid, you know, I've heard coaches say this, and I totally disagree with it, and I, I know I'm stepping on friends' toes, but he, he's a, he, he leads by example or he leads by his actions. Now, your leader's got to be that guy that'll say it. He's got to be that guy that can get on a high, he's a high school kid that gets on a high school kid's level and he tells it like it is. And we had a kid, we weren't sure he was, he was third, fourth string catcher. We tried to make a first baseman out of him, really didn't, wasn't working out, but he had a pretty good arm and he, he just happened to go, Hey coach, can I throw a bullpen? And we were like, yeah, it was the end of a, you know, it was an end of a January bullpen. We were like, jump up there. And he kind of has a little funk about him. But he's got a pretty good fastball. He keeps it on the knees, and he can spin a breaking ball. And I was like, holy cow. So we used that guy out of the bullpen. And so he's, he was in the dugout for one of our first games. And we had a pretty talented freshman that uh, got quite a few at-bats this year, which is really rare uh, around here. And he got some at-bats, and he hit a ball in the gap and kind of watched it and loafed down the line a little bit and got thrown out at second. When he got back to the dugout, I didn't realize it because I was over at third and we were in the first base dugout. After the game, my coaches, they were fired up. And I was like, what is up, guys? We just lost that game. What's up? And they were like, you should have heard, you know, and they said the player's name, you should have heard him get on the freshman about loafing out of the box. It was awesome. And I was like, that's the kind of leadership I want. I want a guy that can get on another high school kid they don't break into a fight. It's a learning experience. And that freshman, he right then understood, hey, it's about us. And these guys care for me, and they want what's best for me. And I did wrong. He came up and apologized to me afterward and said, Coach, I was wrong. But I was set straight, and uh, that will never happen again. And I thought that's, that was one of the coolest leadership moments 
you know, I've had in my coaching career. So you mentioned that the leader has to hold uphold some standards. Can you you mind sharing what those standards are? Well, you know, as a young coach, when I first started out 30 years ago, I did what a lot of coaches do. I had too much time with the typewriter and the computer, and uh, I made up a list of rules, and my rules were long. And my first year, I got backed into a corner by my own rules, and I was like, wow, that'll never happen again. So I took out like 20 of the rules. Well, that still left me with 20 rules. And over time, what I found out, we kind of got this from Coach Corbin at Vanderbilt. We really don't have rules. We have standards that you need to live up to. You know, the standards, they're not many, but we enforce them. And, you know, be on time. If you're not on time, that's, that's a major problem. Behave like a gentleman. Play against the game. Show the other team respect. Don't talk to the other team. Just play the game. You're out there by yourself. That other squad's just, they're giving you somebody to practice against. So we kind of take that approach. And when I started hacking out some of the rules, uh, it kind of freed me up. And it freed me up to, if I wanted to make a hard decision, I can make a hard decision. If it wasn't that big of a deal, I wasn't hemmed in. If a kid got his cell phone, take it up in class, uh, I could listen to him, hear his side of it. And, you know, I can make a judgment based on both sides instead of, hey, cell phone gets taken up, you got five miles on the track. I didn't like that because kids were coming to me going, coach, my cell phone fell out of my pocket. And another player saying, coach, it fell out of his pocket, you know, and it was taken up. And I, I didn't like that I had to punish that kid because he didn't mean for it to happen. It just happened. So the, by having the standards uh, instead of, you know, a lot of rules. I think uh, as a coach, it allows me to to show them, hey, I'm on your side, but you may have done wrong. Uh, I'm going to have to give you a little punishment. What do you think I should do to you? And, you know, there's that give and take, and it, it builds that, that family team environment, I think. Definitely. And just as you were saying that, I was reminded of a quote that I, I can't for the life of me remember who said it, but and you have to treat kids like, not quite like investments, but they are investing. And so you've got a kid who has done everything right for four years and might get in trouble. Well, if you have a set rule and, you know, it might not be fair for him because it's the first time he's ever gotten in trouble versus the, you know, maybe the freshman kid who's in trouble all the time who has the exact same punishment. So I always, I always thought that was, that was really telling. I, what are your thoughts about that? I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I didn't become a coach to punish kids. I came became a coach because I wanted a guide. And I love the game, and I want guys that love the game, and I want guys that respect, you know, what we're doing and respect each other. Uh, you know, we have a lot of give and take. I, you know, heck, I allow, my, uh, I allow my players to help guide me, you know, and, hey, what are we doing well? What do we need to work on? How do you think it's going? What's the mood of the team? Uh, do we need a day off here? You know, what's going on? And I think, you know, I hear coaches talk about building relationships and then they run out a list of 50 rules. Well, you know, it, it comes back to trust. Uh, my players trust me and they trust what we're doing. And I like to show faith and trust in my players and I like their input because, hey, They've got an investment in this also, and uh, I just I always go, you know, wow, I'd, I, I got to be firm but fair, but I'd like to be that coach I want to play for. You know, some of the best compliments 
I've ever had in my life where other coaches will go, man, I'd love to play for you. And, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, I really appreciate that. With that said, I can shoot a look across the room and just paralyze a junior third baseman if I need to. Uh, I could see that for sure. What does a typical day look like uh, in the spring for you guys? When do you start and, you know, Monday through Friday, take us through what you guys would do. We can start January 1. We can start, uh, you know, hitting. Uh, we we have, it's kind of, it's a really nice barn. And it's got turf on the floor and three cages in it and four mounds. Uh, you know, thanks to parents who who really made improvements. We try to make improvements every year. And we'll start doing that, and we'll throw our bullpens in January. Uh, we can get on the field mid-February, and our first game is going to be mid-March. And in Tennessee, we go mid-March to uh, all the way through April, and the first weekend in May, we start our like conference, our district tournament. And then that progresses to a region game, uh, region semifinal, region championship, sectional. And then in Tennessee, we kind of mimic uh, the College World Series. We're going to take eight teams in each classification to the state tournament, uh, two brackets, that kind of thing. So probably uh, we're probably playing three or four days a week. Uh, we're allowed to play three tournaments. So we end up playing, most teams in Tennessee will end up playing, you know, if the weather cooperates. You could play 35 games. So I, I think we play our conference games on Monday, Tuesday. Wednesday is almost always a day off. You know, and this is where I kind of go down a different road when it comes to practice. Uh, I think you can practice too much. I think coaches try to put too much in. We start every practice with ground balls and fly balls, and we'll do that for 20, 25 minutes. Nothing but ground balls. We'll have four fungo guys going. We take ground balls. The infielders are taking ground balls for 20 minutes. The outfielders, it's usually a machine. Sometimes it's live bat. Uh, they're taking fly balls. After practice, we are situated, how we're situated, uh, we have a really cool, big uh, brick wall and right next to, you know, our parking lot. And infielders will work that wall every day. They're going to work that wall with a rubber ball. You know, I'm not the only guy that does this. I know that. But I think uh, if we can catch fly balls and field ground balls uh, better than somebody else, then, you know, that's going to keep us in a lot of games. So our in-season practices, once our season starts, if the weather's right, we're going to practice in shorts. Uh, we're going to hit. Uh, we might do a little base running stuff, but we're going to do the ground ball, fly ball thing every day. We will introduce a concept, uh, you know, dirt ball read, delay steal, you know, bunt for a hit, something like that. We're going to introduce stuff like that every day. We're, we're, we're going to work on a lot of things once we once once they have it down. We're going to work on a lot of things for a short amount of time, uh, pretty much every day. No, that's very simple, but it's, so is the game of baseball, I suppose. It's just hard to do. It's very, you know, the fundamentals. When I was a again, when I was a younger coach, my practice plans were unbelievable. I mean, they were down to the minute. Uh, everything was timed, uh, and I hated it. I really, I hated it. So now we don't go by time. We don't, we're going to do first and third from 345 to 355. Now all I do is I make a list and a list of things I want to get done. 
and we get those things done. So I'm not I'm not held accountable by a clock. If I want to go 20 minutes on first and third, I can go 20 minutes. If we go over at one time uh, and they got it, we're moving on. We're moving on to something else. I, I just don't like getting handcuffed by a clock. And so do you guys, you said you take Wednesday or you're off Wednesdays. Does that mean you take Wednesdays off of practice? Wednesday is go get a haircut, uh, go to the orthodontist, uh, go to a movie, do some homework, hang out with friends, go to the first baseman's mom's house. She's making spaghetti tonight. It's get away from me and I'm getting away from you. Kind of a mental health day. And I actually, uh, for about five years, I had no assistant coaches and it was just me. And I was like, I I just can't do this today. I got I got to heal. So I was like, hey, off day. And they were like, what? And I was like, we don't play tomorrow. We play on Friday. We're taking today off. And they were like, okay. And went from the locker room, and I was like, wow, they needed one too. So now I, it's just kind of become a thing. And I think that's one of the most overlooked things that coaches do. You want to win, you want to be good, but I want my guys mentally healthy. I want them physically healthy. And sometimes that off day, that's better than practice because uh, they get to walk away. So we started doing that, and we'll try to strategically put off days in, and I'll let them know in advance. Hey, uh, if you need to call Cindy Lou down at the beauty shop, get your perm redone or something like that. Um <laughs> Give her a call because we're going to be off on Wednesday afternoon. How did you decide what you're doing is working or if you need to change some things? I have core beliefs that, you know, I, I'm we're going to do. And they're never going to change. Uh, we're going to defend. We're going to run the bases well. Uh, we're going to be able to put a bunt down when we need it. Uh, we're going to move up on a dirt ball. And my guys know my core beliefs. Uh, we may change how we teach it, add something to it, but we're going to do those four things. We're going to do them really well uh, because we we have to. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, I used to I used to be that guy, and I had like six or seven bunt defenses, and we'd spend all our time, and I chart practices and go back and look and see, you know, what we worked on and how many times we worked on it. What I found out is we were working on a whole bunch of bunt defenses that we never used. Sometimes it never came up. And I was like, oh, that's, that's dumb. Uh, I gotta be, I'm smarter than that. And basically, we have two bunt defenses. And, you know, we can pick out of them, uh, pick the second, pick the first, whatever. But we're going to run two bunt defenses. And if you put the bunt down, we're going to try to find the out. We're not going to force the issue. You know, you bun the guy from first to second, you're going to bun him to second. If I like how it looks, we may intentionally walk the next guy and pitch the next guy. Uh, I think when you bunt, sometimes you give uh, the defense more options than they had before you bunted. So kind of taking out a lot of the bunt defenses because we are spending a lot of time working on it, and it just it wasn't happening. I, I was trying to make my guys too mechanical instead of freeing them up to be athletes. So. You know, that's that's one thing that I didn't feel like was working, so we just killed that. But, man, you better be able to defend, run the bases, put a bunt down for a hit, uh, and you better make good dirtball reads or I'm going to be tough to live with. So do you guys continue strength training? 
We try to, and it'd be, it's more of a maintenance lift. We have a pitcher's lift, two-way lift, and a hitter's lift. And, you know, we try to. What is the latest thing learned that you're really excited about? I'm amazed at how many smart hitting and pitching guys there are out there. But I think we're getting to, I think we're getting to a level now uh, with social media and computer and YouTube. Uh, there's so much stuff out there. You know, I get guys, uh, I get 13-year-old kids who walk in here as freshmen. You know, I think it, it can be dangerous if they see something on YouTube. Or uh, I'm amazed at the 13-year-old that wants to throw a power slider, you know, and he's throwing, you know, 52 miles an hour, and he wants a power <laughs> slider. And uh, I'm like, hey, man, uh, you know, let's spot a fastball and throw a change up and no, see if you can make a two-seam run or something like that. Uh, hitting, you know, watch all these guys argue about ground balls versus fly balls and stuff like that. Uh, we want to hit, we, you know, in line drives and where you want to hit it in the cage. Uh, and, you know, we have our way and those guys, their way works for them. And uh, they've got all the science and research to back it up. I want my guys to match the plane of the pitcher's pitch. Uh, it's coming slightly downhill. I want my hitters to get uphill. Uh, I want them to slot that elbow. Uh, I want them to turn the barrel before they go forward. Uh, I want them to get that barrel going uphill, and I want a tilted line drive about five feet over the second baseman or shortstop's head. And I want that thing to carry as far as it can into the gap, and we're trying to play as much of our offense, we're trying to play against the fence as we can. If your outfielders are involved in the game a lot, then we're doing – we're doing uh, a pretty good job. And so on the flip side of that question, what is something that you once thought was true, but you have recently changed your mind about? Probably the, uh, you know, I know I said it earlier, the bunt defense. I think bunt defense is overrated. I think it's a waste of time. Uh, golly, uh, have corner guys. If you suspect a bunt, walk your guy in. Uh, if they're, they've been coached right, uh, they're going to pull back and take a swing which is taking you out of your game and probably doing what we want to do anyway. We want to, you know, if we make a good pitch, I don't know, arguing with umpires, I think that's overrated. Uh, I do it, but uh, I, I just, I know the rules. And, you know, I don't say that with arrogance. I say it with confidence. Everybody gets a copy of the rule book. I'm amazed at how many guys don't read it and, uh, you know, don't know how to, uh, pinch hit for a guy and then re-enter him or take your pitcher for that left hit, le take your right-handed pitcher and bring in a left-handed pitcher to face a left-handed hitter and put your pitcher at first base and then put him back on the mound and re-enter your first baseman. You know, the the rules are designed, and uh, if you know the rules, uh, I think you can take advantage of situations. When I started as a coach, I thought I knew the rules. You know, and then I started reading them, and... You know, there's a big difference in major league rules and college rules and high school rules and federation rules and youth rules. I'm not going to play a game if I don't know the rules of the game. So, you know, I want to know all the rules I can when it comes to baseball. So this is something that it's something that's not talked about a whole lot. But when and what do you say to an umpire? I know I'm not going to change his mind. Every one out of ten times he might ask for help, you know, humble himself enough to get the call right, because they're always talking about how they want to get the call right. But many times I think if you challenge them, uh, they think you're challenging their manhood 
instead of their knowledge of what just happened. Most of the time, to be honest with you, most of the time when I go to an umpire, I want my team to see it. I want my team to go, you know, wow, coach is taking up for us right there. Uh, I want my kids' parents to see it like, wow, that guy, uh, he's taking up for our team. He's taking up for players. And, you know, if I go to an umpire, it has, I think, quite the opposite effect if I don't go to the umpire. If I go to the umpire, everybody sees I'm taking up for the situation in my team. Uh, I think you can defuse the crowd. I think you take the emotions out of it. Whereas if you if a guy never goes to an umpire, calls time and goes to an umpire uh, mid-game, uh, I think the players become too emotional. I think the fans become emotional. Their parents become too emotional. So I think it has the opposite effect. I think you can defuse a lot of situations uh, by going to an umpire and communicating with and. There are a lot of there's there are a lot of good umpires and just this past year uh, I went out and I didn't charge the umpire I just walked out and I got about five feet away and he goes hey I I know I was right on that and I said well let, let me just stand here for a second and we acted like we were talking and I turned around and went back and as soon as you get to the dugout the coaches and the players are like what do you say. Well, he knows how I feel about it. So, I mean, they feel like you're on their side. That's part of the tradition, you know. It's just the etiquette of how you do it. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I love that take. So, what are some of your favorite resources? I'm 54. I just turned 54 years old, and I knew I I, I knew in my heart that I was going to coach when I was in little league. So, I talked to my coaches, and I got in junior college. And I went to my first junior college, dropped baseball after the first year, but the coach was amazing. So I hung out near him, and uh, I transferred to another junior college and got to play for another amazing coach. I told him when I transferred in that, uh, hey, listen, I'm thinking about being a coach, so I'm not challenging you, but sometimes I may ask you, what are you doing right there? And you can teach me, and I'd keep notebooks, and I'd write notes on our games, and then I went on and I played at Division One school, and same thing, you know, to the point to where he was like, uh, I, you know, at that time I had converted to a pitcher because I couldn't hit. I couldn't hit sliders. And so I became a pitcher, and I kind of threw down under. You know, he kind of put me in charge of pitching drills and the bullpen and things like that because he knew I wouldn't pitch until late in the game. And uh, so I, I got to learn you know, as a player, I got to learn the offensive side, the defensive side, the pitching side. I got to go through it all at the college level. And like I said, I was a very, very below average player, but soaked it all in. So uh, I've learned a lot from great coaches. Uh, My number one go-to resource are some really, really, really solid good friends all over the country who, you know, I talk to all the time. I pick up stuff, uh, you know, off the internet, Twitter, all that kind of stuff. But my favorite thing is actually going to clinics and conferences where you can FaceTime right there in person with guys and just sit in a lobby and talk about stuff, uh, new stuff, old stuff. How do you do this? How do you do that? So uh, my favorite resources, uh, probably my, my friends, conferences, clinics, things like that. You know, I recently had on... Wes Brooks from Oxford, Alabama, and he mentioned that you had a 
baseball coaches association presentation that was called Phrases That Win and that he really loved it. So can you tell us a little bit about that? You know, when you sit in the audience at a clinic or a conference, you talk about hitting or how to turn a double play. Guys are sitting there going, nah, you can't do that. You know, that's not how you do it. So I was like, what can I come up with that's a pretty good topic that nobody can blow me up? I I just created this thing called Phrases That Win. We do it. It's how I teach. You may not teach it like that. But like I said, I'm just an average coach, and I got a lot of average guys that love the game and just bust it. And we were trying to figure out, and I've heard this before, and I've heard, oh, that kid's not coachable. I don't believe that. I believe if you're in my program and you're sacrificing your time, I believe you're coachable. I just believe some guys are better uh, uh, learners than others. So I think all my guys are coachable. I think if you play, you're coachable. You just may not be a strong learner. Same thing in the classroom. You may love the subject, but you're not any good at it. And, you know, when I was in high school, I, uh, you have to take foreign language, and I took French. I thought it was a cool subject, and I wasn't any good at it. And I had to work really hard. That's when I kind of opened my mind that, wow, some people are coachable. All people are coachable. And it's just some people aren't good learners. So I came up with this thing, and I was trying to develop better learners in my program. How can I develop a better learner? So we came up with uh, just like little phrases to reinforce what we're trying to uh, teach. They're simple. They're direct. If I work at camp, I use them. If I'm in the cage with my guys, uh, I use them. If I'm on the field, I don't have to stop and explain, you know, I'm not the kind of coach that likes to hear myself talk, believe it or not. I want my guys getting better. And, uh, you know, when they're hitting, we'll just talk about, hey, front eye in the zone. Just a little short phrase, hey, load with your legs. Hey, move it forward, talking about, you know, the barrel. Keep the barrel going forward to the bat. Find the barrel. That means, you know, fat part of the uh, ball with fat part of the bat. Find contact. Find hard contact. You know, when they're bunting, we'll just say, hey, eye level. Or Dirtball Reed will say, hey, read his knees. Talking about reading the catcher's knees. If you see the knees going down, uh, it's going to be a block probably. If they're going to the side, you might be able to move up on that. Uh, you know, I know a lot of guys read the glove. Well, that's cool. You know, we kind of put the knees into it because if you're reading the glove, there's going to be a block, but he might be able to control that block. If you see knees going at an angle, um, that ball might roll away from him, and if you get a jump, go. So they're just little short phrases, uh, you know, and I found examples and threw some pictures up, and Wes likes pictures. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud. Uh, you know, I love Wes and so many coaches. Uh, I'm just proud he got something out of it. So earlier you mentioned that you had a ton of head coaches that you got the opportunity to learn from, but what was something that you wished you had known before you took your first head coaching job? How, as a head coach, the last thing you get to do is actually coach. How the head coach, you know, I I look at my assistant coaches, and I'm so lucky, you know, I've got all kinds of help, and these guys, they know what they're doing. I like to let them coach, but as a head coach, i got to make sure umpires are there. i got to make sure travel's on time. Is the bus scheduled? Have I ordered equipment? Oh, my gosh, we're out of seven and a fourth hats, and I need two. Uh, what do I do? Uh, uh, we got equipment issues. It's raining today. You know, and the, hard, the hardest thing I have to do as a coach, and I hate this, is I have to look at the forecast and tell a team who's an hour and a half away 
Uh, it looks like it's going to rain, but I'm not sure, but it's coming right at us. And cancel the game and move it and uh, get up at the banquet and speak and at the final banquet and give out awards and speak and then take care of the field and then have tryouts and determine, you know, hey, what's this kid's future? Can you squint your eyes and see this, you know, skinny 13-year-old? Can you see him playing varsity in a couple of years? Is he going to help us? Everything but coaching. I did not. I thought coaches just showed up, hit a couple of ground balls, made out a lineup, and played strategy for two hours. I, I had no idea how deep the head coach's role goes. You know, uh, discipline, parent issues. If a coach says he doesn't have parents, parent issues, or parents that don't like him, that guy, that guy's out of touch. And I've been doing this a long time, and I got a lot of people that they don't like the decisions that I've made. You know, you got to live with that. You got to get thick skin and be a big boy and look out for what's best for the team. Well, that seems to be a popular answer that basically, as an assistant coach, you do 90% of coaching and 10% of administrative work. And you completely flip that to 90% administrative work to 10% as a head coach. Uh, You're absolutely right. And, you know, I'm a full time teacher, so I teach all day. And then I got to hustle and I got to prep the field. And then I get to sit back and kind of relax. And uh, uh, I had a coach go, Coach, this is a huge, huge game right here. Are you nervous? And I said, are you kidding me? This is the only time all day where I get to relax and do what I love to do. You know, it, it'll be three, two bases loaded. And I'll call the pitch. And one of my assistant coaches will be sitting next to me. And he goes, you called a curveball, didn't you? And I went, you're darn right I did. And... We'll get a strikeout, just lock a hitter down, just buckle him. Three, two bases loaded curveball. Everybody's pumped up, and now i got to go coach third. Uh, i got to figure out how to get some runs. Who have I got coming up? Seven, eight, nine. How can I make one run out of seven, eight, nine? And flip this order over and get us some offense. And we'll get a run, and i got to run back in, and i got to get ready to go again when it comes to defense. Hey, my shortstop, play in that six hole some more. That's fun to me. Catching a guy breaking uh, one of those standards, that's no fun. Uh, dealing with a parent who uh, their kid's my 28-string shortstop, and they think they should be you know, getting an SEC scholarship and starting, uh, that's no fun, and that's no fun for anybody. But if you meet things head on and you don't dodge situations, uh, stuff comes up, handle it right then, uh, confront you know, I, I think you have fewer problems. So I know you're a huge Yankee fan, and you know I'm a diehard Red Sox fan, but I also know that David Price was in your district and you guys played against him. So I can't let you off the show without asking if you have any good David Price stories. David Price played at Blackman High School in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. That is our old district. They redistrict a few years back and took us out of that district. David Price, he rolls out, and he's going to pitch against us, and it's at our place, and it's about 30 degrees, 5 o'clock start, 30 degrees, and all day long I got scouts calling me, and they're like, Butch, do not cancel this game. And I'm like, guys, it's 30 degrees. I'm not standing out there in 30-degree weather. And they went, do not cancel this game. And 
I had made a comment. I had made a comment earlier in the week in the newspaper. We had a pretty good pitcher who went on and he pitched in college. He got a back injury, but he was pretty good. And uh, I said, you know, uh, Oakland, Murfreesboro, Oakland High School, they got their guy. Blackman High School has Price. But I think my guy's the best pitcher in the district. And I did not realize I lit David Price's fuse. So my guys, we're battling. He comes out. We don't cancel a game. He rolls in, and I'm like, holy smokes, he's grown. And he's warming up in the bullpen. You can hear it. And I'm, I'm telling my guys, listen, the only shot we have, you're not going to hit this guy. I want you to get quality swings in. Let's see how many foul balls we can hit. And when you strike out, let's try to make it 3-2 with a couple foul balls. Let's run his pitch count us. So long story short, high school baseball, seven innings, 21 outs. He strikes us out 21 times in the first seven innings. We don't get a hit. He's no hitting us. But they're not hitting either because my guy – uh, struck out 16, and they're not hitting either. So it's 0-0. We go to the eight, and every time I'd run by their dugout to third base, I'd look at their coach and I'd go, my gosh, getting colder. How many pitches is he thrown? And I just kept on going. Well, he was a high market commodity, obviously, and he got to a certain pitch count, and their coach went and got him. We go hit, hit by pitch. Bunt him over, single in the sixth hole, and walk him off. And he ended up he ended up striking us out 23 times uh, in the game, and we won the game one to nothing. That's my David Price story. Wow, that's that's unbelievable. I'm sitting over here just trying not to just crack up on the microphone. But that is that's really cool. Well, he came off after he uh, he struck my guys out in the first inning. I think on like 11 pitches. In the second inning, uh, I think he struck us out like on 12 pitches. And as he was coming off the mound and I'm headed back, we kind of got close. And he looked at me and I went, took you 12 that time. And <laughs> I just kept on walking. And he's looking at me like, who is this coach? So the next inning, I think it took him like 16, 17. We started hitting foul balls. And uh, uh, he came off the mound after strike. He had struck out nine of the first nine, obviously. And he came off the mound. And he, he just kind of jumped over the foul line, and he goes, I'm the best pitcher in the district. I said, David, you're pretty daggum good. <laughs> but uh, it was just, it was comical. You know, a lot of people don't realize when he didn't pitch, he played center field, but he batted fourth for him. And so, you know, it was a tough luck loss for him, but, heck, he's a cleanup guy. He could have hit one out off my guy, I guess. That should have helped himself out, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So before you go, uh, tell us where our listeners can find you online because I know there's going to be some that would love to get in touch with you. I'm big into Twitter. I think Twitter was invented for me. I really think I could publish a book of all the tweets that I've deleted. Uh, but I, I really love my teaching and coaching jobs. But uh, if you go to at garbage, G-A-W-B-A-G-E 29, you'll find me. I used to have an egg or an Abby, but uh, I figured out how to put pictures on there. So, you know, I'm advancing a little bit in the world of technology. But uh, I've met a lot of good people off Twitter, and then you hook up with them at clinics and conventions and uh, things like that uh, through Twitter. So I'm big, I'm a big believer in that. Oh, that's how we got connected. And you mentioned about the egg. The egg didn't go away until about a month ago. So, uh, you know, rest in peace, egg. But I'm glad you finally figured out how to put it. I know, and it's funny because at our high school game, we have an incredible bunch of guys 
who come to our games and they're in the right field corner on the other side of the fence and they drag a grill out there. We buy them like hamburgers and hot dogs. The last one we got in the playoffs and they're grilling steaks down there and they just climb on the fence and they call themselves the right field rowdy and they just get, it's obnoxious. It's awesome. So after every game, you know, we go down there, we run down there and we thank them, slap hands and tell them how much they mean to us and how much we appreciate them. And uh, so you know, they do those big heads on a stick and stuff like that. So they had a couple of those. And uh, I kept looking down there uh, one game, and my assistant coach is dying laughing. He goes, hey, they put your picture up. And it was that egg off Twitter. So, <laughs> Oh, man, that's pretty good. Well, Coach, I don't think there's a better way to end the show than that. But is there anything that you'd like to add or tell our listeners before you go? You know, I've got good friends who are football coaches and basketball coaches and lacrosse coaches and soccer coaches, but there's nothing like a baseball coach on the planet Earth. Baseball coaches are special, and I, I had a guy uh, tell me at a clinic one time. He had all the uh, all the new gear set up on tables and everything like that, and uh, they made the announcement that, uh, uh, you know, the exhibits were closing, and these guys just walked away. And I was like, you guys just leave all your stuff out? And they went, you're baseball coaches. You pick a glove up, you pound in the pocket, you may walk around with it, but you always bring it back. He said, we do the football one, you can't leave anything laying around. Those guys will pick a football up and walk off with it, and you'll never see it again. Nothing against football coaches, but this guy, I just started thinking about it. And baseball coaches are special guys. We'll see a broken rake, and we won't throw it away. We think we can fix it and use it for something eventually. And the brotherhood, baseball coaches will sit and draw their bunt defenses, their first and third defenses, their trick plays, anything. They'll sit in the lobby and show everybody what they do. And I, I've never seen a basketball coach sit in the lobby and go over all his inbound plays. Or a football coach tell you exactly how he's going to run his RPO offense. But baseball coaches, they're just, it's a different breed. You know, I've, I've seen... Guys, they will go and play games and just try to rip each other's hearts out, sit at a table in a restaurant and just laugh and uh, tell, tell each other how much they love each other and love being around each other. Uh, I just think baseball coaches are special. And there's so many great coaches out there that, you know, they, they have bad players and they're never going to win a championship. And I think in a lot of sports, if you don't win a championship, that's how people judge you. But in baseball, gosh, some of the most respect I have for coaches are for guys that they take bad players, figure out how to win a few games, and, but those guys get better. And, you know, if I was going to add one thing, it's, it's just that baseball coaches are special guys. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. If you'd like to get in touch with me or view the show notes, you can find all of that information on our website at aotcpodcast.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.